All right, well, you might remember that uh, back around Christmas time, leading up to Christmas and a little bit after that we were going through the book of Luke, um, pa- Pastor Dave was preaching through that. At the same time, um, across the street in our youth Sunday school class, we were going through that pretty much at the same pace. Uh, and so, if you remember, don't remember, last time we ended uh, that series at the end of chapter 3 of Luke, uh, which was there at the end of the genealogy of Jesus, you know, starting with Jesus uh, and working his way back to Adam, uh, calling him even the Son of God. Well, this morning we're going to see what happens next in chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Luke. In chapter 4, it's also be on page 9 of your worship guide, text that we'll be reading together. Where it says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation... He departed from him until an opportune time. The words of the Lord. I believe the Spirit is using this passage, this story, to show us that Jesus defeats temptation where temptation defeats us. And because of that, the Spirit is calling on us, He's calling on you and me to come to Him even in our failure. Luke begins the chapter by telling us where Jesus had just come from. In verse 1, he says he was full of the Holy Spirit and returned from the Jordan. It was there at the Jordan, in chapter 3, where Jesus was baptized by his cousin John. And while coming up out of the water, a voice declares from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And in the same scene, We're told that the Holy Spirit descends on him in bodily form like a dove, anointing him. Now, anointed by the Spirit and declared as the Son of God, Jesus is led by the Spirit to a place that we might not expect. He leads Jesus out into the wilderness, to the desert. Why would the Spirit lead Jesus here? 
Luke is doing something we've seen him do already in his gospel, showing Jesus as greater and better than others who have come before him. We saw this pretty clearly as we walked through the first few chapters of Luke back around Christmas time. We saw that Zechariah the priest is told by an angel of the birth of his son who would be named John. He would be a great prophet. But Mary, a virgin, is told by an angel that she will have a son by the Holy Spirit. And he will not only be great, but will rule, rule from the throne of his father David. John is born to Zechariah and Elizabeth in their old age, even with the miraculous sign. But Jesus is born, again, of a virgin, with a multitude of angels worshiping and honoring him at his birth. John is shown as great, but Jesus is clearly greater. Now here in chapter 4, we're being shown how Jesus the Son of God is greater than a group of people who throughout Scripture are often referred to as the Son of God. And that's the entire nation of Israel. As we were reading through the passage here in Luke 4, I wonder if you noticed any parallels to Israel's own experience in this same wilderness. Back in the book of Exodus, the people of Israel who are now a great multitude, has just been delivered from slavery in Egypt. In a miraculous and dramatic way, God has the people of Israel pass through the Red Sea with the waters parted around them. But as soon as they pass through, God brings the waters down on Pharaoh's army that's chasing them. And from there, God leads them into the wilderness on their way to the land that he promised to give them, the land he promised to Abraham and his descendants. And it's here in the desert where we see God call Israel his own people and gives them his good law. But it's also where we see God's people rebel and groan against him. And because of this, God makes that generation of Israel to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, looking back at our story in Luke, we see that Jesus is in a very similar setting. Jesus goes through the waters at his baptism, while Israel goes through the waters at the Red Sea, which is often described in Scripture as their baptism. Like Israel, it's God who leads Jesus into the wilderness by his Spirit. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days, hearkening back to the 40 years Israel spent in the desert. And in all of Jesus' responses to the devil's temptations, he quotes from the law book given to Israel while they were in the wilderness. And in Exodus 15, 25, we even learn the reason why the Lord brought Israel out into the wilderness. It was to test them says there that the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. So both Jesus and Israel in this desert experience some kind of testing. For Israel, well, 
They didn't pass the test. Almost from the very moment they leave Egypt, they grumble and complain against the Lord and against Moses. They grow thirsty and hungry. They, at one point, even build a statue of a calf made with the gold that they plundered from the nation of Egypt and bow down to worship it rather than the God who saved them from Egypt. And I wonder if you remember times in your own life where you were tested and, like Israel, didn't do well either. It's in the temptations and testings of Jesus that Luke shows us how much greater Jesus is than his fathers in the desert. In this, we will also see how we fall to the same temptations that Israel fell to, but that Jesus defeats. We see first in verses 3 and 4 that Jesus is able to say no to his desires, even in a very difficult situation, and trust in God to provide for what he needs. In verse 3, the devil says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. The devil is essentially saying, if you really are God's Son, you shouldn't have to be suffering like this. You shouldn't have to be hungry. Just take this stone, turn it into bread, and satisfy your hunger. And at first glance, we might not think that if Jesus did this, it would be all that big of a deal. Right? He hasn't eaten for 40 days. It's probably hot. He's hungry. This reminds me of when I was in a youth group in the church that I grew up in. And for a few years, we would do this thing called a 30-hour famine. And what a great idea, right? Take a bunch of moody teenagers not feed them for a whole day and see what happens, right? I remember playing a bunch of games, having some Bible study time, but I mostly remember getting very grumpy and just wanting to eat some donuts. So I couldn't even imagine the kind of hunger and pain that Jesus is experiencing after not eating for 40 days. When Luke says here that Jesus is hungry, it's not the I haven't eaten for a couple of meals kind of hunger, but a move out of the way, I'm about to die kind of hunger. So what Satan is really trying to get Jesus to do is to let his desire and hunger for food rule and dictate his actions. He's trying to get Jesus to doubt that his Father really will provide for him and really give him everything he needs. What is Jesus's response to this. Well, he simply repeats God's words in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He says, man shall not live by bread alone. Why does Jesus say this? It's kind of a weird, weird statement. Well, for a little more context, let's flip over to Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. I'll begin reading in verse 2 and read through verse 3. 
It says, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your hearts, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In these words, God's telling Israel the purpose for why they were there in the wilderness and why they were even led to hunger. It was to humble them, to discipline them, to teach them to ultimately trust in God, his word, his promises. He promised to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that would be bountiful and plentiful. He promised to care for them, to protect them, to provide for them all of their needs. He was teaching them to trust in him as their provider. But what does Israel do? They grumble and complain against the Lord. Literally the chapter after we learn of God rescuing Israel by bringing down the Red Sea on the Pharaoh's army in Exodus 14 and 15, the people of Israel grumble against the Lord. They grow hungry and say to Moses and Aaron in Exodus 16:3, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Even though they couldn't turn stones into bread, Israel falls to the devil's temptation. They would have rather had their most immediate desire and craving satisfied than trust in the Lord and wait on him to provide for them. It's as if they were saying, if we're really sons of God, why should we hunger like this? Why would God let this happen to us? At the heart of this is a sin of unbelief and ingratitude toward God. And this sin didn't start with Israel, but we see the same thing at work in the hearts of our first parents, Adam and Eve, all the way back in Genesis 3. There the devil sows seeds in, of doubt in their minds that God really doesn't have their best interest at heart, that he's really holding them back from their true potential, that if they would just take matters into their own hands and eat the forbidden fruit, they would even become like God. Isn't this sin at work in our own hearts as well? The devil tempts us to believe that God doesn't really care about us, That the rules and the laws that he gives us are just that. Rules there to keep us from having any real fun or living as our true selves. The devil tempts us to think, if I could just have that one thing, I would be truly satisfied. If I could just have this much money in my bank account, I'll be okay. If I could just get that one job, that one position at work, Life will be good. 
This temptation can also be at the heart of how we often sin with our bodies. If we don't see sex as primarily a gift from God to be enjoyed in the way he's designed it, but instead as primarily a desire or a craving to be satisfied, we fall to this temptation. When we think of sex in this way, it's like we're telling God, if you really loved me, if you really cared about me, it shouldn't matter who I sleep with because it satisfies my desire for love and acceptance. It's like telling God, if you really loved me, it shouldn't really matter what's on my computer history because it's what I need to satisfy my need for des- my desire for comfort and control. This can also be at the root of any temptation to let our appetite for food rule us. We aren't tempted to turn stones into bread, but we're often tempted to use our craving for food to satisfy some longing or hurt inside of us. And here in our context, it can be very tempting to want the good life we see our neighbors have, oftentimes at the expense of trusting in God to provide for all of our needs. This might play out in cutting corners at work, only fudging the numbers just a little bit so you can afford that new car that you know will make your neighbor jealous. Or maybe this desire makes you even bitter at God because he hasn't given you the job you've always wanted or the spouse you've always dreamed of or the number of kids you've hoped to have. Instead of trusting in God, like Israel, you grumble at God. Where Adam and Eve fail, where Israel fails, where you and I fail, Jesus passes the test. Instead of giving in to the devil's temptation to let his desires rule over him, Jesus says, no, I trust more in what my Father will provide for me than what this momentary piece of bread could give me. When the second temptation, we see that Jesus doesn't give in to a lust for power and glory that's apart from God's plan and purpose. In verse 5 of Luke 4, flip back there because I'm still in Deuteronomy. Verse 5, we see that the devil takes Jesus up to some high point. Uh, This is probably a mountain there because we read in the parallel gospel of Matthew in this same story that that's where the devil takes him. And in some supernatural way, the devil shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. This makes me think of those view masters that you can hold up to your face, kind of like binoculars, and then you flip the switch and it just kind of runs the different slideshow of pictures. Satan is able to show Jesus all the kingdoms in the world, some sort of slideshow. Probably sees the glory and expanse of the Roman Empire, maybe the kingdoms that are in the Far East, maybe even the kingdoms that are inhabiting the present day North and South America. The devil then tells him that if he will only bow down and worship him, It will all be his. 
When I read this, if I'm honest, I have a hard time recognizing this as a realistic temptation for Jesus, the Son of God, the one by whom all things were created and by whom all things are upheld. But in that moment, the devil was offering Jesus a way out of the excruciatingly painful way of the cross, the way that his Father was calling him to walk. We learn elsewhere in Scripture that in some sense, Satan truly does have power and sway over this present world. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, Satan is now described as the ruler of this world in John 12, 31. Even though God is ultimately sovereign over all things, Satan is allowed to exercise dominion even now. So Satan is telling Jesus, you don't have to be rejected by your friends and family. You don't have to be questioned and ridiculed by the religious leaders in the crowds. You don't have to die on that cross to get the kingdom that you're after. All you have to do is bow down and worship me, and I'll give it to you. What was Jesus' response? He again quotes from Deuteronomy, this time from Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. He says, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. If we look back to the passage in Deuteronomy 6, feel free to flip there if you're curious what it says. Deuteronomy 6, we see that this command is in the context of God giving His law to Israel. In this chapter, God calls the Israelites to love Him with all of their heart, with all of their soul, and with all of their might. And in verse 12, He says, Then take care lest you forget the Lord. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. But what does Israel ultimately do? Well, while waiting for Moses to come down from the mountain where he's meeting with God and receiving the law, the people of Israel grow impatient. In Exodus 32, instead of following his command, they tell Aaron, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron then makes from the gold plundered from the Egyptians a golden calf for the people to bow down and worship. We see again that Israel falls to the same temptation that's presented to Jesus in Luke 4. Instead of waiting on the Lord and trusting Him to establish them and their kingdom in His way and His timing, they take matters into their own hands, seeking power and glory by making their own gods and worshiping them. 
And this would be not the only time that Israel worships other gods in order to establish their own kingdom. But the rest of their history would be a story of following the Lord, but then turning away from Him. We see this cycle all throughout the book of Judges, throughout the stories of the kings, which ultimately leads to Israel's exile in a foreign land. It's not only Israel that falls to this, but we see again that even before them, Adam and Eve in the garden failed. Taking and eating the fruit forbidden by God, Adam and Eve reverse the order of creation. Instead of worshiping and being obedient to their creator, they listen to and obey a snake, a creature. They lust after the power and the glory that this snake is offering them instead of worshiping their creator and looking to establish his kingdom. Isn't this what we see in our own hearts as well? At the root of many of the sins that we struggle with in our lives is a lust for the power and the glory that Satan and this world offer us. This can really be summed up with what the Bible calls pride. Instead of loving God with all of our soul, mind, and strength, instead of loving our neighbors, we put ourselves at the center of our world. Something doesn't benefit me or further my own agenda or my kingdom, I want nothing to do with it. If my wife doesn't want to spend money how I want to spend money, I'm going to either will her into seeing things my own way or just ignore her and do my own thing. If an employee that I manage and oversee is telling me how something in their workload is becoming unbearable, I either tell them to suck it up and figure it out or just ignore the problem and hope it goes away. God tells you to be generous with your money and resources. You'll give only as it benefits you and your goals, if you even give it all. Instead of worshiping and fearing God alone, we worship and serve ourselves, our own interests, our own little kingdom. And I hope that we can see just how satanic this way of thinking and acting really is. But where Israel fails, where Adam and Eve fail, and where we fail, Jesus passes the test. Instead of giving in to the temptation to gain power and glory without the pain and sorrow awaiting him, Jesus was obedient to his Father, seeking first his kingdom and going the way of the cross. And in the third and final and climactic temptation of Jesus, we see that Jesus is greater than Israel because he is content with God's vindication in God's way and timing. In verse 9 of Luke 4, the devil takes Jesus to another high place, but this time it's the pinnacle of the temple. If you're familiar with what the temple looked like at this time. This was probably on the southeastern corner of the temple, 
overlooking the Kidron Valley with a drop of somewhere around 300 feet to the bottom. Again, the devil tempts Jesus saying, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. But notice that's not all he says. He does something very interesting that should jump out to us. Like Jesus in the last two temptations, the devil himself quotes Scripture. Reciting from Psalm 91, the devil tries to convince Jesus that if he's really the Son of God, and he jumps from the top of the temple, God would surely rescue him and protect him. He says, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The devil is essentially telling Jesus, if you're really the Son of God, you should jump. Because God says, even in his word, that he will protect you and catch you by his angels. Look, it's right here in Psalms. Wouldn't you be doubting God if you didn't jump? At the heart of this, Satan is tempting Jesus to essentially make God prove himself to him, to prove that he's really with him. But what does Jesus do? He again quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, this time from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. He says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus immediately saw this temptation for what it truly was, putting God to the test. This quotation from Deuteronomy 6, 16 cuts off the second half of the verse. All of verse 16 reads, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. Here, God is referring back to when Israel, as they were in this same wilderness, grumbled against him and quarreled with Moses because they were thirsty. If you look back at Exodus 17, the people of Israel are moving along in the wilderness, but there's no water for the people to drink. In verse 2, we read, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Israel goes on to continue to grumble against the Lord and Moses, asking God again why he would bring them out, to Egypt, bring them out of Egypt, only to kill them, their children, and their livestock in this desert. So Moses cries out to God, and God provides water for the people by having Moses strike a rock with his staff. And at the end of the story, in verse 7, it says that Moses called the name of the place Messah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, here's the question, is the Lord among us or not? In their wilderness experience, the people of Israel fall again to the devil's temptation. 
In their hearts, they question, is God really here? Will he really provide for us and protect us? Why doesn't he prove himself? At the root of this is a desire to be vindicated, to be proven right. They try to force God to show himself, to reveal himself to them. This is what it means to put God to the test. Isn't this what we often find in our own hearts as well? When difficult or unexpected things happen in our lives, do we give God ultimatums, demanding that God prove himself? When we're wronged, instead of waiting on God to vindicate us, do we try to get even or try to prove ourselves right? When political leaders say things or try to create laws that are attacking us even as Christians, do you immediately go to Facebook or Twitter to try to attack, demean them or relish in those that do? Do you look for ways to bring down your opponents instead of praying for their repentance? Now, don't misunderstand me. God will vindicate and protect his people, but it might not be in the timing or the way we expect or want him to in the moment. Where Israel fails, where we fail, Jesus, the true Son of God, passes the test. Instead of giving in to the devil's temptation and jumping from the temple, instead of asking the question Israel asked, is the Lord among us or not? Jesus trusts in his Father's protection in his own way and timing. Church, where we fail the test by giving in to our desires and letting them rule over us, Jesus passes it by showing self-control and trust in his Father to provide. Where we fail the test by lusting for power and fame, trying to build our own kingdom, Jesus passes it by submitting to the will of his Father, seeking first his kingdom, even all the way to his own death at the cross. And where we fail the test by trying to vindicate ourselves by testing God, Jesus passes it by trusting and waiting on his Father to make things right. In a culture that often tells us to ignore or not talk about failure, the message that you have failed but that Jesus has not is actually amazing news because he can be yours. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, you may be thinking to yourself, what's this got to do with me? Why does it matter that this Middle Eastern man hundreds of years ago went out into a desert and said no to this devil character? But here's why it matters. At some point in your life, there's a good chance you've realized that something is wrong. And there's not just something wrong with the world around you, but something really wrong with something inside of you. You know in your heart that there are thoughts that you have. There's habits that you can't shake or 
things you've done in the past that are just messed up and wrong. And as we went through these three temptations, you may have found yourself thinking, yeah, I've done all of those things. Friend, if that's you, this story matters a great deal to you. You see, the wrong that you feel in your heart is what the Bible calls sin. And because of sin, we all, all humanity, stand in judgment before God. Because Adam and Eve fell, and because we fall to the devil's temptations, we stand condemned before God, unable to save ourselves. But this Jesus, this true Son of God, He came to die in your place. He came to bear the guilt and punishment for your sins on the cross. But the only way He could do this is if He Himself was a perfect sacrifice. Meaning he never sinned. He never fell to Satan's temptations. If Jesus had fallen even to one of these temptations, or if he had sinned leading up to or after this encounter, he would have not been able to stand in your place on the cross. Friend, if you've never looked to Jesus for salvation, he is calling you today to place your faith in him. This means trusting that at the cross, Jesus took on your sin, that he bore the punishment and guilt of your sin, and that he also freely gives to you his perfect record, his perfect obedience to the Father. Come to him. Trust in him today. Because ultimately, this is why Jesus could say no to the devil in the first place. If he would have given in to his own desires and turned that stone into bread, he would not be our perfect substitute. If he would have bowed down to worship the devil and obtained all the kingdoms of the world, he would have done it without dying on the cross, paying for your sins. If he would have jumped from the temple, he would not have been vindicated by the Father in his resurrection from the dead. Friend, he does all of this for you. Come to him. If you're here this morning and you are a believer, you are a Christian, you have put your faith in Jesus, trusting that at the cross his obedience is now counted toward you and your sinful disobedience was borne by him. What does this story mean to you? Well, if you're like me, You recognize that just because you've trusted in Jesus for salvation, it doesn't mean that sin and the devil have stopped showing up in your life. Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, if if people only knew how messed up I am, they wouldn't be considering me a Christian. You may even think, Jesus must be fed up with me. I keep falling to the same sin over and over, and I just can't seem to get out. Christian, if that's you, this story means a great deal to you as well. The writer of Hebrews helps us understand why this is so important to us as believers. Hebrews 2, starting in verse 17, he says, 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus not only became like you in order to go to the cross to cover your sins, he became like you to suffer like you, to be tempted like you. Also he can help you. When you look at porn again, after telling yourself for what it seems like the hundredth time that you'd never go back to it, Jesus doesn't look at you and say, man, when will this guy figure it out? When you're leaving work, you start feeling guilty for that conversation you just had with your coworker that was demeaning and untrue about your boss. Jesus isn't thinking to himself, there she goes again. I am, I'm tired of this. No, Christian. The same victorious Jesus from the desert is not distantly looking at you disappointed, but he is right there beside you, offering his hand to you and saying, I love you. Let me help you. Let me show you how to fight this. Let me show you how to rely on my spirit. Let me fight for you. Weary Christian, this is where true freedom is found. In your failure with temptation, come to Jesus. Don't hide from him. Only he knows how to fully say no to destructive and deceitful desires. Only he knows how to ultimately sacrifice himself for others and seek first the kingdom of God. Only he knows how to truly wait on his Father's timing and provision. Make him your greatest desire. Make glorifying, exalting his kingdom your greatest goal. Long for his return. Long to see him face to face and for him to make all things right and good. Church, let's go to him even right now as we ask for him to help us.